Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Parker McCumber back to the program. Parker, good to see you once again. For those meeting you for the first time, take just a second here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Parker McCumber. I am a serial entrepreneur, and I'm currently a Doctor of Business Administration student. Uh, I write for Young Voices on economic policy and international affairs. And I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me again, Brian. Well, we've got a great topic to discuss today and and a very timely one at that. I'm looking at your article from AmericanThinker.com about a central bank digital currency would harm our economy. And I'll admit, I'm one of those people who's very skeptical about CBDCs to start with. But that's an angle that I really hadn't considered. I'm, I'm looking at it more from the privacy side. And I don't want to, I don't want a social, you know, social... Uh, score, you know, being attached to, to my, my spending or my ability to earn a living. But talk to me about the danger that a CBDC could pose to the economy itself. Definitely. Uh, so just to be upfront, I am also very concerned about the uh, personal risk as well. Uh, but one of the uh, aspects of a CBDC that I don't think was covered as much as it maybe should be uh, was the fact that a central bank digital currency would undermine our current banking system and credit system, uh, and it could really disrupt our ability to uh, operate in our current established manner. So what kind of time frame are we looking at? I mean, you know, I've, I've heard about it now for some time, but I've also heard it's getting closer, it's getting closer. By my reckoning, it probably is, is closer to a reality than not. Am I close? I, I think you're right. Uh, I don't know if there's really a hard fixed timeline on it. It's something that's very commonly discussed now. Uh, there's proponents for that say a CBDC is going to increase payment efficiency and it's going to help us make payments more secure. And then you have you know the detractors who are looking at, well, hold on, this is going to exacerbate bank runs. Uh, it's going to uproot our ability to issue credit. It's going to, uh, you know, withdraw from personal financial freedom. And you already have existing systems or existing solutions like Ethereum and Bitcoin that provide the solutions that people are saying a CBDC would offer. So there's really not a lot of positive, you know, on, on my view or from my viewpoint on a CBDC. Uh, I think the big push for proponents is that it gives, you know, that centralized control to the central bank and, you know, subsequently just the federal government. Yeah, I, I know convenience is a big thing. And and frankly, I'll, I'll admit, I was one of those people who was actually very slow even to get to using my debit card. I preferred mm-hmm. writing a check. I preferred paying cash. And I was I was suspicious even, you know, as far as, you know, I'll oh, just tap your card and it's good to go. But now I've come around to it and boy, is it convenient. And when somebody ahead of me in line is writing a check, it's hard not to look at my watch and kind of, they're <sighs> taking a long time. This is so convenient, so quick. Yeah. But it sounds like we, we have to weigh out, you know, we're, we're gaining convenience in, in some aspects, but in terms of what it's costing us, talk to me about some of the unseen costs that people need to consider before they, uh, you know, open their arms to embrace CBDCs. Sure. So uh, to kind of address the efficiency piece up front, 
Uh, from my perspective and the research that I've done, I don't actually think that there's going to be a very noticeable increase in efficiency to the average consumer, right? When you tap your debit card or your credit card, that transaction is nearly instant as it is. So as far as the efficiency piece, we're talking about microseconds uh, to the average consumer and maybe some benefit on wire transfers and, and larger purchasing um, out of the ordinary. But some of the risk that, that comes with, I previously mentioned um, bank scares and bank runs. And, and so mm -hmm. I just kind of wanted to highlight that. The Cato Institute released an article uh, last month that highlighted how a CBDC could exacerbate those problems. Uh, and I mentioned it in my article, specifically referring to things like the Silicon Valley bank um, run this year and uh, Signature Bank as well, and now a few others. Uh, the Federal Reserve, I believe the um, Boston Federal, no, Baltimore, Baltimore Federal Reserve, I think, mentioned uh, in a 2013 article summit uh, that, you know, bank scares cause bank runs and bank runs cause a contraction of the monetary supply which decreases spending, which decreases investing, which decreases GDP, and the entire economy comes to a trickle. Now that becomes a, a bigger problem when you introduce something like a CBDC because you have an instantaneous way that's widely accessible for people to take their money out of the commercial banks, to take their money out of the system that we've been using and move it to a central bank controlled you know, per, perhaps just a digital wallet, kind of like we have with Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they have a, an easy and widely accessible way to quickly pull their money out and hold on to it. And in essence, you create a snowball effect where you could be just shutting down bank after bank after bank. Uh, and so on the surface, you have that, but that also entails, you know, slows in the availability of credit. Uh, which slows lending, which slows home purchases, car purchases, uh, and really can shut down the economy on a much bigger scale, not to mention the loss of employment and jobs with those banks uh, that accompanies it. So there's a lot of, I think, negative economic repercussions that people don't necessarily look at on the surface of a CBDC. No, that, that makes sense. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, my understanding is uh, that... Uh, Banks right now are already seeing kind of a decrease in uh, the in people making deposits or an increase in people uh, withdrawing deposits. It seems like I'm, I'm starting to see some some small but noticeable restrictions popping up here and there. Is that a thing? I mean, it's it's not a bank run, but it sounds like there with with some of the bank closings and and some of the bank acquisitions and banks failing, like there there does appear to be a growing crisis of confidence. I 100% agree. I think that there is a, a little bit more of an eye opening happening with consumers right now where they're seeing uh, that banks are not invincible and some are being bought and some are being paid off and some are, are shutting down. Uh, but, you know, things like that cause a consumer to tighten their wallet and maybe hold on to their cash. So they're less likely to deposit it. They want to hold on to the physical asset, um, you know, in an effort to protect it, essentially. So talk to me about where is this politically? You mentioned in your article there are some uh, political representatives who, for instance, are not on board with this. But 
is is this something could you give me a feel generally is it an accepted idea by by most people you know for instance in congress or are are they kind of taking a wait and see approach so i i wouldn't say that they're taking a wait and see approach but i would say it's pretty divided right now uh, you have some legislature currently being pushed to prevent the creation of a CBDC altogether. Uh, however, the support for that is really, I think, a 50-50 split um, where you have a lot of, of uh, congressmen and senators that want to see a CBDC go into effect. And you have a lot on the opposite side who are like, hold on, no way. This is too big of a risk. Uh, typically, it's, their viewpoint is to that, that personal freedom. Um, that that individual financial protections. But, uh, you know, to be honest, I don't see any kind of legislature or legislation moving quickly at this point just due to the split. So what's uh, what's the best thing that as consumers we ought to be doing? I mean, in addition to becoming better informed about CBDCs, um, are there any action steps that we can take? For instance, you know, I'm I'm fully 100 percent not on board um, do I need to reach out to to my representatives and let them know this this is a really bad idea? So definitely, I recommend that uh, at, at the end of my article. I think if you do your research, you've read into CBDCs and you oppose them, you should be reaching out to your elected representatives and letting them know uh, that you do not want them to support that, and that's not your view. Okay, and and as you've made the point in your article, it's it's. From a, from a privacy standpoint, there are plenty of reasons to be concerned, but um, just from an economic standpoint, it's not like the economy is standing on the strongest legs right now to start with. This, uh, this may be a, uh, something that sends it even into a more wobbly state than it currently is. 100%. Where do you recommend people go to, to learn more about it? Are there, are there some good authoritative sources, sources that you might recommend? Uh, yeah, actually, and I cite them in my article. Uh, there's a handful of of congressional reports, even the uh, Federal Reserve has released their literature reviews on the subject, uh, as well as articles uh, from the Cato Institute um, that have kind of researched the the situation. So there's a lot of of high quality sources out there for you to be able to make a educated and informed opinion. All right, we are talking with Parker McCumber. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Parker, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Parker McCumber. That's spelled P-A-R-K-E-R underscore McCumber, M-C-C-U-M-B-E-R. Thank you so much. I hope we talk again soon. I really appreciate it, Brian. You have a good one. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Luke Woodall Gillard to the program. He's a Young Voices contributor as well as an expedition photographer and medic. And and Luke, I'd, I'd love it if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sounds to me like you lead a, a pretty interesting life. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my name is Luke. I'm an expedition medic based out of London in the United Kingdom. But my job lets me go to all sorts of places, jungle, to the Arctic Circle, to the desert, uh, anywhere where there's uh, an adventure to be there. 
And then my photographic work, uh, I specialized in, in the expedition adventure side, photojournalism side, and uh, I cover stories to do with, with One Health, which is the veterinary and environmental health, conservation, and then the impacts of humanitarian conflict uh, on our world. And so I'm part of the Young Voices Contributor Program for the Adventure Medic magazine. And I'm a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Wonderful. I'm, I'm very happy for this opportunity to visit with you. And I'm looking at a, a fun article. The headline caught my attention. Billionaires give cows New Year's resolutions to stop burping. Okay, you have my attention. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Um, I understand that there are environmental concerns about methane emissions from cattle. Talk to me about this specific effort and, and who are these billionaires that are, that are raising millions of dollars to, to help stop cows from burping? Sure. So, you know, I do the editors and, and just like you, they sort of, had a laugh at the start before we actually three of the richest men alive uh bill gates jeff bezos and jack did you know all this money into something that a lot of people five years ago had uh, most of the world we either you know eat meat or we eat rice rice produce a, a lot of methane into our atmosphere and how we go about that they've taken a keen interest into. And this article is explaining this new endeavor out of Australia, which is using seaweed of all things. Uh, and it's actually a seaweed thing rather than core seaweed to reduce methane emissions from livestock, which is why the company is called Ruminate. Uh, fun play on words there. And they're saying rather than the 20 to 35 to maybe even 40% reductions of competitors have been saying for the past couple of years that they can achieve, they're saying 80% saying we could go methane neutral, which is an insane statement to make, an amazing feat, but their goals are quite low. They're talking about 100 million cows by 2030. There's 1.4 billion cows. When we're really looking at it, and what I was going for with this article is saying, we can have these strategies to, to help fix our planet. But if they're not available to everyone, if they're not available, then it's just a drop in the ocean. That makes sense. And uh, I have to ask you this only because inquiring minds like mine want to know. Um, isn't there also naturally occurring uh, methane? It, does does this take into account uh, you know decomposing matter in swamps that uh, you know bubbles to the surface or are, are we looking specifically at the contributions that large scale cattle operations you know are, are putting into the atmosphere? Now that is a great question, and you're totally right. Which sphere? So. Without delving into the science too much, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm about to qualify. So my, my limit of science is what I learned in school. Uh, but for, for instance, our atmosphere, the thing that allows us to breathe, is made up of predominantly oxygen and then a load of other gases 
which contribute less than 1% of our that. Methane is 0.0000167 or, or something along minuscule amount. But its ability to absorb heat, which in this very lucky position as a planet that we're far enough away from the sun, cold an atmosphere and we can be warm. Yeah, I love the cold, but I wouldn't want to be as cold as it would be greenhouse gases, whether that's carbon dioxide or methane and the effects that those have on to generate heat. The problem is, is that we are generating more than what is naturally meant to be in the system. Now, the great thing about water vapor is uh, I increase the amount of water vapor to a certain point, and then it rains, and that water vapor goes through, simply can't hold it. But the problem with methane and, and carbon dioxide continue to generate and continue to be held in our atmosphere. Now, many people will say, look, there, there's fossil fuels, there, there's rice, there's livestock, there's many different contributors. And carbon dioxide, uh, as you said, you know, cutting down trees and decomposing carbon dioxide comes into it. And carbon dioxide, over the long span, we're talking centuries, less than methane. But where methane comes into its own is in our first 20 years, times more potent than carbon dioxide in 20 years. After that, you know, after 12 years, out. so it's something that we can fix short term. It's something that we can use as a sort of cope the life we're living now to where we need to be in 2030, 2040, and then into 2100. So are there others besides the, the billionaires that you mentioned who are, are uh, embracing, you know, this, this potential solution that uh, this company, Ruminate, is putting forth? I mean, it, it sounds like this is very cutting edge, but um, it's also not being kept a secret. I wonder if there are others lining up to get behind it and, and to back it. So, so Ruminate aren't, aren't the first ones to do this. Uh, there, there was uh, years ago when they were starting to use seaweed it, in North America to do this. Uh, Ruminate is doing is two things. It's first that the type of seaweed they use, which is a very complicated Latin name, so I'm just going to call it red seaweed. All right? uh, that's in warmer waters which is great if you're down in the South Pacific and we can grow it as much as we want. So that's one thing. The other thing is that they're building it as a sun, as the core ingredient of just sort of chopping up the seaweed and giving that on top food source that you would give to your livestock. And the third thing they're doing over their competition, Dutch State, Dutch State Mines, DSM, uh, is that they're able to deliver water, oil, or liquid form. And this is where the really interesting stuff happens. We're not going to have to have a farmer going out and putting this out onto pasture every day. I've worked in Australia. They're very busy men and women. They have a lot of things to be doing. They don't want to be go 100 or 200 head minimum and going off and doing this every day. So that it's safe to drink for us and them, then that the expansion. Well, that is comforting that, uh, you know, we're talking about a naturally occurring substance 
and and not something that you know has potential to um, you know cause problems you know further down the food chain. For people who want to know more, in addition to your excellent article on this, is there a resource you could recommend where people could go to to become better informed on this issue? I would say that definitely check out uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which set up fund. Look at the United Nations uh, Food and Agricultural Organization. The FAO has an amazing um, set of uh, protocols that you can look at. And and just the sustainable development goals are a massive part of what we're doing with this. This hits both nine. So look at those and, and, and talk to your friends. Tell them about it because it's about generating public support. Okay. I appreciate you taking the time to visit with us. Again, we're talking with Luke Woodall Gillard. He is a Young Voices contributor, and you've got some other exciting stuff going on in your life, too. Luke, thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're welcoming a familiar voice back to the program. That would be uh, Samuel Mangold-Lennett. Sam, for people meeting you for the first time, take just a second here to, to fill in some blanks about who you are and what you do. Sure thing. Well, first off, thanks for having me back. Happy to be here. Uh, so I am a staff editor at The Federalist and a native of Cincinnati, Ohio. Nice. Nice. And you've got a great article here that uh, that I really enjoyed about uh, RFK Jr. In fact, specifically, exhausted Republican voters should be more skeptical of RFK Jr. I would probably count myself as one of those exhausted Republican voters. And nonetheless, when he announced he was uh, planning on running on the Democrat ticket... I found myself intrigued, and it was primarily because it seems like the establishment doesn't like this guy very much. Talk to me about uh, about uh, what what do you go into in the article, and, and what are some of the reasons that uh, exhausted Republicans like me should nonetheless maintain a healthy sense of skepticism regarding this guy? Sure thing. Oh, I appreciate that you liked it. And uh, so... For those unfamiliar, you know, RFK Jr., his name and the acronym probably gives it away, but, you know, he's he's a Kennedy. He's the son of Robert Kennedy, the former attorney general and the senator from New York, and the nephew of John F. Kennedy, the president who met his untimely demise from uh, questionable means, well, to put it charitably. Um, RFK, for, you know, younger listeners, uh, has been a uh, environmental lawyer for his entire career. He's a rabid environmentalist. He has made his living being a, you know, a very prominent corporate lawyer and a also as a pro bono environmental lawyer on the activist side. He, at one point in time, he was on the shortlist for Obama's 2008 um, presidential EPA nominee. He didn't, you know, he obviously wasn't the um, secretary, but he was in the running. He was heavily considered, um, so, you know, but fast forward to current day, rather to uh, 2019, 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic kicked off, he became a very prominent voice of skepticism. He was raising the alarm about, you know, government lockdowns, mass censorship online and in the media, how, you know, the synthesis of government uh, cronyism, corporatism, and the federal government, and how those two worked hand in glove together in a form of economic fascism. He was very previously working with Anthony Fauci uh, throughout the 
government and his corporate life, he was very critical of his response to the AIDS pandemic or epidemic, whatever the uh, proper term there is. Uh, and he published a book called The Real Anthony Fauci that, you know, broke down this, his criticisms. He, uh, he was really, you know, gained a huge cult following because uh, he was willing to actually speak tr uncomfortable truths to power. He was critical of COVID vaccines just because, you know, he didn't, because of his skepticism of, you know, this, this, uh, this growing consolidation of power, he was, and censorship, he was very, very critical of the potential medical passports that were being floated and vax mandates. A huge uh, component of his platform is, in general, is the ability to choose what you do with your life. He, he is a, you know, I don't want to say a classical liberal, but he is a liberal Democrat. So that's kind of the uh, the Sparknotes version, but happy to get more in depth. Okay. And and all those points that you're hitting on, you know, were th to, to people like me who, are, you know, were tired of all of the, the COVID drama, tired of the overreach, tired of uh, some of the soft and even not so soft uh, authoritarianism that, uh, that we've seen. It, it's so good to hear somebody in a prominent place pushing back against it. However... As you point out in your article, there are some other considerations. And, you know, being being a very rabid environmental lawyer, I have to admit, that's that's a big consideration for me because there's a lot of uh, encroachment that takes place in the name of climate change. Right. You know, he's, he's very anti-fossil uh, fuel, very anti-nuclear, um, but he's very pro, you know, quote, unquote, green, quote, unquote, unquote, clean energy. He's very pro, you know, um, windmill, solar, hydro. But also not of using um, hydroelectrical damming because you have to take into account, you know, how does this affect Native American populations? How does it affect water systems and fish, et cetera? So he's very big on windmills and solar panels. Well, you know, the technology isn't really there for those to be effective. They just kind of take up space and leave our power grid unpowered. They're just ineffective. But at the same time, he wants to get a, transition us away from fossil fuels, transition us away from coal, and doesn't want to even consider nuclear energy as an option. So for as, you know, as much as people want to actually consider, you know, cleaner energy sources, his full embrace of them is just untethered from reality. It's not realistic. No, I think I think that's a fair description. Now, he also is, uh, you had mentioned, um, rather wrapped up in identity politics. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So currently I don't, historically, at least, you know, in 2011, uh, prior to the lefts, you know, this was still at the time when gay marriage was kind of like the edgy subversive political stance. Um, you know, Obama didn't really switch over his stance on gay marriage until around this time, many Democrats in Congress and, uh, in the federal, uh, just in, across the country were still, you know, pro traditional marriage in 2011, uh, J, uh, RFK signed a letter with the Human Rights Campaign, a very corporate-backed institution, to uh, support to express his support for same-sex marriage in the state of New York. Um, so that shows that he's on the cutting edge, uh, or rather, trying to be on the cutting edge. I'm not really sure if it's genuine or if it's more of an aesthetic thing to kind of ingratiate himself with certain circles. But he's at least moving towards an advancement of social leftism. And further to that point, running as a Democrat. Considering he's not going to get fair treatment from the corporate media and considering that the Democratic Party is not going to have debates where he can confront Joe Biden directly about certain policy issues, he has to try and win over parts of the base. And the Democratic Party's base is very, very socially left. They want up until the moment of birth abortion, they want, you know, 
full embrace of identitarian politics. Whether or not he currently embraces these these stances on abortion, it's kind of unclear where he stands, but he has to at least flirt with these ideas if he wants to win over a considerable enough portion of the base to take more support away from Biden. It's not enough simply just to, you know, talk about the things he's talking about, or that that does seem to be successful to a certain degree. He has to actually embrace leftism to become the Democratic nominee. And to be fair, I don't think he really has a chance at all, solely because of how the Democratic Party has, you know, solidified its support behind an incumbent, which, you know, that that does make sense. That's how these things tend to shake out, uh, shake up or shape up rather. But if he does have if he wants to have any chance at all, he does have to become a full yeah, it does have to have a full embrace of social leftism and economic leftism to a degree. So I, I want to get your opinion, Sam. Um, is it possible that there is is some segment or not, or maybe even a growing segment within the Democratic Party that is is tiring of the, the identitarian politics and tiring of the, the more radicalized leftist uh you know, mantra that it has become the norm for, for the Democrats. I just, I know there are people frustrated within the Republican party. Is there, is there a core within the Democrat party? That's like, you know what, this is going too far. I can't get on board with this. Right. Um, you know, I'm not so sure about, I don't really have any data to to suggest there is or indicating that there is, but my gut would tell me there is at least some coalition of, you know, disaffected liberals who, are fed up with it because it does affect their day-to-day lives. You know, there's got to be some coalition of, and we saw this with the school board protests across across the country recently, that there are parents who are fed up with how, you know, gender theory and CRT affects their kids' day-to-day lives and their educations. Um, so I, just intrinsically, I think there is some coalition of that, but the base is the, the corporate support, the, um, the media support, the financial support is all behind rabid socialist leftism. Okay, so it's, yeah, in other words, the the inmates still have control of the asylum. Fully, unfortunately. Okay, talk to me about uh, why, again, Republicans need to be careful. Now, you you nail some great points here about it's good to hear someone pushing back against government. Frankly, I don't feel like I hear enough Republicans doing that. But in this case, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he's pushing back and he's, he's definitely hitting some of the right notes. But Remind me again, why is it best to to be skeptical as opposed to, oh, good, anybody, anybody who's pushing back, you know, we should throw our weight behind them? For sure. Well, you know, first and foremost, RFK is currently running as a Democrat. Republicans can't vote for him uh, unless he takes the nomination away from Joe Biden or runs as an independent. So that should be noted. But Republicans should be skeptical of him because he's placating to a lot of points that Republicans currently like. He's very much in the populist vein at the moment which was the same vein that Donald Trump occupies currently and that popular potential candidates like Ron DeSantis currently occupy. That's where the energy currently is. But just because someone says things that are true about, you know, three of five things, they could be horribly wrong about two of the five. Um, so it's a matter of making sure that your values and your priorities realign on a candidate more so than they don't. No, I think that's sound advice. And, and you know, to, to kind of prove that point, um, with all the calls for gun control right now, Kennedy's got some, uh, well, in my opinion, wrong, pretty wrong opinions on gun control. Again, we're talking with Samuel Mangold-Lennett. Sam, where can people follow you? Where can they find you on social media? 
Yeah, you can find my writing at thefederalist.com and you can find me on Twitter at S-M-L-E-N-E-T-D. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today for Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Rachel Chu back to the program. Rachel, it has been a while since we last talked, so I'm guessing for some people this is going to be the first opportunity to get to know you. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Of course. Thank you so much. Um, So my name is Rachel Chu. I am a contributor with Young Voices, and I'm also a resident fellow at the Committee for Justice. And you have a very interesting and timely article that we'll be discussing today. Chat GPT's artificial intelligence can produce artificial truth. Now, I admit, I'm kind of a newbie to, to using AI, but, uh, but I've been, been playing around with it. It's very impressive, unbelievably fast, like mind-blowingly fast. But, mm-hmm. but there's something you point out in your article, and that is uh, that for chat GPT, a lot of their success comes from producing responses to the user's request as opposed to accurate, truthful <laughs> responses. Let's, let's delve into mm-hmm. that a bit. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think the interesting thing with chat GPT is that for many folks in the public, this is their first taste of what AI can do. And I think that that's very profound. Um, But at the same time, there's this perception that um, chat GPT, amongst many others, that they are wholly accurate, right? Because there's something about having that technological aspect to it, that data-driven aspect to it that makes it seem like whatever it produces is actually true. And I think that given where we are right now with this technology, that perception can be very dangerous because if folks are using this and just taking what they see as fact, it may not be the case. And as I found, and I'm sure you have seen as well, it's often wrong most of the time. (laughs) And um, it can produce things that sound very true, that sound very accurate, but the stakes can often be very high, too, if it produces something that's not true, that's defamatory, that's incorrect about another person, organization. So as users, that's something that we should be very aware of. It seems that one of the things I've noticed people pointing out when when they're interacting with ChatGPT is whoever programmed this AI uh, seems to have programmed some biases into it as well. Yeah, yeah. And so that's something that we've seen in a lot of different contexts with AI. Um, So uh, a few years ago, I was doing research on AI hiring bias. And even though these uh, hiring tools that companies were using were perhaps better than a human who would be doing it, it was still not um, free of bias. And that's something that in the hiring context that they were trying to, to work through, not something that could fully be resolved in part because AI trains on data. And if there's bias in that, the AI can't get rid of it per se. And so that's something that I think plagues a lot of different AI systems. Um, I would say at the same time, though, despite these issues, these are things that we should for sure be aware of, but at the same time, understand that there are a lot of positive uses for AI and we shouldn't stifle that. So don't be so quick to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
Exactly. Exactly. What are some of the, some of the responses, for instance, though, that, uh, you know, governments that have concerns that AI um, either is is, you know, too powerful or or inaccurate. I understand that some are having what I would call maybe kind of a knee-jerk reaction to it. Uh, can you give me any examples of, of what government's trying to do to to either get ahead of this or to 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 rein in what they they perceive as as a potential threat from AI? Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's one country that I would like to flag. So Italy uh, had a temporary ban um, in which they paused the usage of chat GPT uh, within their borders. Um, they have since lifted that, I believe, at the end of last month. Um, but I think that that example is very profound. That is the first country in the West to propose and implement a ban of that sort. Um, and it, it got a lot of other countries in Europe to take a pause and think, okay, is this something that we want to do as well? Um, And in the United States, um, some lawmakers have been toying with the idea of having more AI rules. Um, So this this belief that perhaps a ban would be um, positive or some other sort of regulation is something we're seeing and hearing a lot more of, which is why um, I I think that the conversation around chat at GPT should be very tempered and very balanced. And what I mean by that is we should be looking at the potential harms, seeing what they are, identifying them, but not implementing a ban that makes it so that we can't even address these issues or even worse, that this technology cannot fully develop. Um, So one example that I I would also want to give here is, um, as we said, um, oftentimes the responses um, that are produced are not necessarily accurate. And if it's false, if it's defamatory, we actually do have a lot of laws for that. Um, If a human um, says something defamatory against another person, um, there are laws to protect against that. Now, we don't know how it's going to relate per se to AI. But those are the types of questions that we should be asking, seeing how our current legal frameworks can perhaps accommodate for AI. So I have to ask you this, and and I know there are some pretty interesting theories out there, some some about, you know, the danger that AI poses. You know, um, anybody who's watched The Terminator is probably like, yeah, yeah, tell us. (laughs) But um, what what are the downsides? I I know there's a lot of potential upsides, but are are there some legitimate Mm -hmm. Um, risks that that we need to be aware of? Yeah, yeah. And I think, so the risk, I think, comes, it's twofold, right? So I think it's the fact that chat GPT and other um, programs like it are not at the stage where they are accurate yet. Um, So that is the first issue. The other side of it, which we talked a little bit about, is that public perception, right? So when users are engaging with these systems and they think it's accurate, right, and they're moving forward with that information as if it's accurate, that poses a big problem. And that's not something that laws will Um, take care of per se, but that's something that I think we as a society need to understand when we're using this technology. It's great. It's fast. It's it's, um, very interesting, but at the same time, it's still new, right? It's very new. And um, with chat GPT, it's using um, training data, excuse me, that has a cutoff point. So it's not going to be even accurate to 
to the current news and events we have. So even if it could produce, even even if it was more accurate, it still has that cutoff point that I think we as users need to understand. And politics and policy flows drown, downstream from what the public actually believes, right? So those two things are very much connected. Um, and I think that as this technology develops, we as a society just need to understand that it's going to have a lot of growing pains. That that makes sense. And I'm looking forward to, look, I, I, I can't wait for the bugs to be worked out and the accuracy <laughs> to, to improve. But uh, what what kind of realistic time frame do we have to, to look at for that to happen? I mean, some of this seems to have just kind of sprung up overnight is is it uh, is it wrong to to have heightened expectations? Well, this ought to be done pretty quickly. Then that's a good question. I wish I had an answer to it. Um, I think a lot of companies are very interested in generative AI and seeing this technology develop at a rapid pace. Um, and with that, I think time will tell to see how fast um, this this AI race, you know, propels companies to um, to engage in research and development. I would say, if I was to put my my best guess forward, I think in the next few years we will see this technology to. to develop further than it currently has. Um, but even more so, I think we're going to see perhaps more re regulatory and legal responses that perhaps go a little too far. So, yeah, we've, we've got to be careful not to, to overreact to, to mm -hmm. problems either, you know, real or um, in our imaginations. Let me ask you this, Rachel, we've got about one minute left here. Um, what mm -hmm. do you see as, as the most likely area where, where this kind of AI is going to become a, a more of a daily part of our lives? Do, I mean, the internet was kind of a novel thing at one time, but now who can imagine life without it? it are, are we on a similar trajectory for, for this kind of AI technology? I think so. And I think there's a lot of positive uses for it. In an administrative co context, I think that there's a lot of tasks that um, generative AI can assist with. I think in an education uh, perspective, there's a lot of positive applications for students. Um, so I think in time, we will see this as a tool more so than a threat. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And I, in fact, in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of getting there. But I did watch uh, I did watch uh, the Terminator Genesis the other day, and it kind of set me back a little bit. So I may have to may have to work on it again. We're talking with uh, Rachel Chu. She is a, a Young Voices contributor. And Rachel, for people who want to follow your work or would like to follow you on social media, what's the best place to find you? Yes, so you can find me on Twitter, Rachel H Chu. Okay, straightforward. Thank you so much for your work, and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to chat. Thanks so much.